Matthew 1, verse 20 through 23. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, I want to say good morning, especially to all of those who are at our two campuses, both here at our Sugarloaf campus and at those of us who are at Mill Creek, and also those who are joining us through the modern technology of live streaming. We are certainly glad to have you with us this morning. Andrew Fletcher was a Scottish politician, lived more than 400 years ago, but he was ahead of his time, even though he said these words four centuries ago, when he said this. He said, let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. Let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes his laws. He was on to something. Because perhaps never before in history has music, music been more of a force right here in our own nation to move our nation and to change our nation and to motivate our nation. As a matter of fact, found this out the other day. I, I didn't even realize this, but modern science actually shows that some way, the way we were created, our bodies are hardwired to respond to music. It's just the way God made us. Elena Manis is an author who wrote a book called in, uh, The Power of Music. And in that book, she tracked the way music affects human beings over the course of a lifespan. For example, they have discovered that little babies, if you have a little baby, they've discovered that infants prefer what's called consonant intervals. And she found that the cries of babies just a few weeks old, listen to this, had some of the same basic intervals common to Western music. Listening to music can help a stroke patient who has lost verbal function relearn to speak. We know that a pleasing melody, this is why malls play soft music or your office plays play soft music. We know that a pleasing melody can literally reduce stress. It can lower your blood pressure. It can increase productivity. It can clear the mind. We now know that music stimulates more parts of the brain than any other human function which is why music often is such a prominent part of our memories. I'll give you an example. Have you ever heard a tune and you just can't get it out of your mind? Go to Disney World and you will leave there and all night long you'll hear, it's a small world. You just can't get the tune out of your mind. Our bodies are hardwired that way. And, and that's why almost every teenager will recognize a Beyonce song within moments, but they can't even repeat the first lines of the Gettysburg Address. Because there's something about music that gets to us. Music shapes who we are as individuals and as a society. And music reflects where a nation really is, both culturally and socially. And I'm going to give you a classic example. Because of the time of the year that we're in right now, I want to show you just how powerful music can be. Billboard magazine released the top Christmas songs of 2013. These were the most popular songs by demand of all the Christmas songs that would be sung and heard throughout 2013. I'm going to start at number 10, and I'm going to take you all the way through number one. These were, by Billboard magazine, the most popular Christmas songs of last year. Just pay attention to what our nation wanted to listen to at this time of year. Number 10 was Holly Jolly Christmas. That was the 10th 
uh, most uh, favorite song. Number nine, Feliz Navidad. Number eight, Underneath the Tree, which I've never even heard of. Number seven, White Christmas. Number six, Little Drummer Boy. My dad hated that song. Number five, Jingle Bell Rock. Number four, Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. Number three, The Christmas Song. Number two, Do You Want to Build a Snowman? And number one, All I Want for Christmas is You. Now here's what amazes me. If somebody came to our country last year, they were not familiar with Christmas. They didn't know about the Christmas holiday. They didn't understand anything about the lights and the tinsels and the trees and all of that. And all they did was just listen to the music that our nation said we want to hear at Christmas time. They would have never gotten the idea that somehow this holiday had something to do with a little baby named Jesus. They would have never known that. As a matter of fact, in case you're wondering, uh, uh, the first time a spiritual Christmas song made the list, it was Silent Night at number 27. And another one that didn't make the list until number 53, Do You Hear What I Hear? Just drive around neighborhoods. I, I challenge you to do this. Go into my neighborhood. Go into your neighborhood. Drive around any neighborhood in our city. You'll see more Santas and more reindeer and more snowmen and more sleighs than you will manger scenes. As a matter of fact, a survey taken last year shows now that fully one half of all Americans now say we do not celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday. We celebrate, celebrate it as just another secular holiday. When children across America go to bed on Christmas Eve, the vast majority of them are thinking a lot more about Santa than they are about Jesus. They're thinking a lot more about the North Pole than they are about Bethlehem. They're thinking a lot more about their Christmas list than they are about Bible verses. They're thinking more about elves than they are about wise men. They're thinking more about the sounds of reindeer hooves on the roof than they are good tidings of great joy for all people. Now, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to contend, and I contend without apology, that if you take Jesus out of the picture, there not only isn't a Christmas, if you take Jesus out of the picture, there's no need for Christmas. There's just no need for the holiday. Now, I realize that when I say that, there are a lot of people in this country who would raise their eyebrows, shake their head at me, and say, Christmas, really? I mean, you really still believe in that Christmas? Because after all, let, let's do give Santa a little credit here. You say, well, why do you think it might be easier to believe in Santa than it is to believe in Jesus? Well, at least Santa didn't claim to be the Son of God. At least Santa did not claim to be born of a virgin. At least Santa has never claimed to die for the sins of anybody, and Santa has never claimed to come back from the dead. So it is a question that our culture and country is asking more and more, do you really believe in that Christmas? So we thought it would be a good idea this Christmas season to do a series called Christmas Really. And I want to share with you over the next three weeks why I believe in Christmas, Christmas and why I think you ought to believe in Christmas too. And I admit, it is not the Christmas of Santa Claus. It is the Christmas of a Savior. And what I want to learn in the next three weeks is, is the birth of this baby was so different 
and so unique. There's never been a birth just like his before his birth, and there's never been a birth just like his after his birth. Now, let me tell you the amazing thing about Christmas and about this birthday that we're talking about. It's really kind of interesting that every year, those of us who know the Lord and those of us who love Jesus, and even, quite frankly, a lot of people who don't, it's really amazing this time of year that we spend so much energy and pour so much money and so much manpower and so much time into celebrating the birth of a baby, and we're not even sure when exactly he was born. We're not exactly sure which year he was born in. We're not really sure which month he was born in. We're not really sure which day is his birthday. But here's the other side of it. Even though if you were to say to me, Pastor, do you know what day he was born? No. Do you know what month he was born in? Not exactly. Do you know what year he was born in? Got a guess but can't be totally sure. But here's what I do know. Even though I do not know the exact day Jesus was born, I can tell you what I do know. It was the exact perfect day. It was, I mean to the minute, exactly when he was supposed to be born. He was not born prematurely. He was not born past his due date. He was not born too late. He was not born too early. He was born right on time. As a matter of fact, his birth illustrates a tremendous principle that's illustrated time and time on a baseball field. I've got up here, you'll recognize this. This is a baseball and a bat. How many of you played baseball? Just, I played baseball. How many of you played, guys? Okay, you played baseball. Uh, Ted Williams said, and I believe it, Ted Williams said the most difficult thing to do in any sport is to hit a baseball. I absolutely believe that is true because I've tried in my past to do it, and it is indeed difficult. As a matter of fact, it is incredible when you think about it to imagine the hand-eye coordination it takes to make contact, now, think about this. If you're a Major League Baseball player, you've got this little white sphere, sphere coming at you at 95 miles an hour. You've got this piece of wood, or this is an aluminum bat for you weaklings. You've got this piece of wood that is about two and three quarters inches wide that you're trying to swing at over 60 miles an hour. Now, you are a batter. You're standing about 56 feet from the pitcher's hand. When that pitcher lets this ball go, you've got exactly 0.45 of a fifth of a second. Not a second. You've got 0.45 of a second to predict where the ball's going to be, to decide if you're going to swing, to instruct your muscles to get that bat moving, and to bring that bat hopefully to a point of impact where the bat meets the ball. Now, if all goes well, the bat and the ball meet a few inches in front of home plate. The ball is crushed to about half its diameter. It springs back. It's launched on its return flight at over 100 miles an hour. Oh, that is if the bat and the ball meet at exactly the right place and at exactly the right spot. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't, as you'll see here. Right at third and one out. Three two coming to Young. And the curveball ripped down the left field line. Headed toward the corner. That ball is foul. Just missed. Chris thought he had it. Here's the payoff pitch. Swinging a high fly ball deep to left field. Forget it. There it goes. Home run, Chris Young. 
He hit it into the lower left field stands behind the retired numbers past the 358 mark. You don't often see a foul home run followed shortly thereafter by a fair home run, but Chris Young spanks his second home run of the year, and the Mets now have a... Now, let me tell you what you just saw. You've seen that many times. You've been to a baseball stadium, and that's you know, not unusual. But let me tell you what you just saw. What you saw was a foul ball with one swing of the bat, and then the next thing you saw was a 400-foot home run with the next swing of the bat. Now, what was the difference? There was only one difference between the foul ball and the home run, and that difference was timing. That's the difference. Everything else was the same. Are you ready for this? The difference between a batter hitting a foul ball and a batter hitting a home run is a swing that is mistimed by .01 second. Everything comes down to .01 second. So the next time you watch a batter at the plate and the next time that batter swings that bat, I want you to remember three words. Timing is everything. Let's say that together. Timing is everything. It really is true. You find that principle throughout the Bible, and you find it especially in the birthday of Jesus because we're going to do something that we've never done. I've never done in my entire ministry. Every time we come to Christmas, what do preachers only talk about? We always talk about the how of his birth. We talk about, you know, he was born of a virgin and, and he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But have you ever thought about when Jesus was born? Have you ever thought about why Jesus was born when Jesus was born? I mean, why wasn't Jesus born earlier than he was? Why wasn't Jesus born later than he was? Why did God wait at a minimum for thousands of years before Jesus Christ ever came on the scene? Well, there was a man by the name of Paul, and he answers that question with a little statement that you might miss or gloss over. It's one of those speed bumps in the Bible. And if you brought a copy of God's Word, I want you to turn. We're going to look at a very fascinating verse in the Bible. It's in the book of Galatians. It's about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. The book of Galatians is right past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians, about eight or nine books over. I want you to turn to, to Galatians chapter 4. Now, while you're turning, let me just kind of give you the backdrop of what Paul's going to tell us. Paul, believe it or not, as much as he talks about Jesus, he doesn't talk very much about the birth of Jesus. He doesn't give us any of the details that, that Matthew and Luke does. As a matter of fact, this is one of the few times that he even mentions the birth of Jesus. But when he does, he tells us something that is just simply incredible. Now, before I tell you what Paul said, keep in mind, Bible scholars tell us that Paul wrote the book of Galatians somewhere around 50 to 52 A.D., so in other words, he wrote this book roughly about 20 years after Jesus had been crucified and about 50 to 55 years after Jesus had been born. Now, that, let me tell you why that's important. When he wrote the book of Galatians, there were people still living who knew Jesus. There were people still living who had met Jesus. There were people still living who had heard Jesus. And even though he had never met the physical Jesus, there were enough people around who had, and if he messed up anything or if he got something wrong, they could certainly step up and they could correct him. So now we come to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, and we hear this incredible statement. Now listen to what Paul says. Paul says, but when, he's not focusing on the how or the why right now. He's just focusing on the when. He said, but when 
the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, if you underscore in your Bible, you ought to put a big red line or a big circle around that little phrase, fullness of time. In the Greek language, that is a very pregnant expression. It describes something that is completely and fully developed. It's, it's like a ripe apple that's ready to be picked or a pregnant woman who's about to deliver her baby. It refers to an appointed time. And now Paul, what Paul is doing is he's answering this question. What he's saying is, why wasn't Jesus born during the days of Moses? Why wasn't Jesus born during the days of David? Why wasn't he born during the days of Isaiah or Solomon or Ezekiel or, or Malachi? Why was Jesus born on the day he was born? And why was he born in the year he was born? Because what Paul is describing here is the exact moment in history when everything was in place, all the pieces were on the board, everything was perfectly lined up, and the stage was perfectly set for God to send his son. What Paul is saying to all of us in this room today is this. Jesus wasn't born a month too early. Jesus wasn't born a year too late. Jesus was born exactly on time. And this is why this is such an incredible statement. According to Paul, God had the birth of Jesus planned down to the exact second on his clock, and to the exact day on his calendar. God had made a divine appointment, and here's the good news. Unlike us, God's never late for his appointments. God's never early for his appointments. God is always right on time. Now, here was the backdrop of what had happened. For thousands of years, the Jews kept waiting for a Messiah. The Jews kept waiting on a Savior. But we're told that a little over 2,000 years ago, at an exact time, on an exact day, in an exact place, the God who created the universe said himself, the time is now. This is when I want to bring my son into the world and the wait is over. Now, you cannot really understand <clears throat> just how incredible Paul's statement is until you walk back down the road of history with me. And I want to tell you three reasons today why the timing of the birth of Jesus Christ was absolutely perfect. Ready? This is, this is, let me tell you something. I don't think I've enjoyed doing a sermon as much in years as I've enjoyed doing this one. We're going to learn a great deal today about just how great our wonderful God is. Number one, the timing was culturally perfect. The timing was culturally perfect. Now, everybody remember, Jesus was not just born into a world. Jesus was born into an empire. And what empire was Jesus born into? The Roman Empire. Jesus was born into the Roman Empire. To this day, it is one of the most powerful empires that has ever existed. Let me tell you about, a little bit about the Roman Empire. It had actually been built upon the foundation of another great empire that went back about 350 years before Jesus was born. Just, can somebody tell me what that empire was? The Greek Empire, okay? So the Roman Empire had actually been built on the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire was built by the greatest military general who ever lived, and his name was... Alexander the Great, okay, are y'all history buffs or are you just not with it today, okay? You, everybody, how many of you have ever heard of Alexander the Great? All right, you've heard of him, okay. Alexander the Great was the only man in history who did something nobody else has ever done. He conquered the entire known world. He set out to conquer the world, and in 12 years, he did just that. 
Now, at his side was a Greek philosopher. I'm not going to ask you what his name is, okay? But anybody want to just guess? Aristotle. He had a Greek philosopher. His name was Aristotle. Aristotle became so influential in the ancient world that the entire world became Greek in its culture. The philosophy was Greek. The buildings were Greek. The architecture was Greek. Drama was Greek. Literature was Greek. There was even a way to think. It was called the Greek thought or the way of Greek thinking. Even people thought as a Greek would think. But that's not the most important thing that happened in the Greek empire. The most important thing that happened in the Greek empire was for the first time since they tried it at the Tower of Babel, the entire known world spoke one universal language. Now, you've got to know what that language is. What was it? It was Greek, okay? Everybody spoke Greek. Now, here's what happened. After Alexander died, four of his generals divided the empire up into four quadrants, North Africa, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. That was the known world. North Africa, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. But there was one thing all four quadrants had in common. Everybody spoke the same language. Greek was the universal language. As a matter of fact, in Egypt, about 280 years before Jesus was born, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, were actually translated into Greek in a book called the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that was the Bible that Jesus preached from. That was the Bible the disciples preached from. That was the Bible that, that, the, that the letters of the New Testament quoted when all the books of the Bible were written. Then the New Testament authors, they began to write. And Matthew and Mark and Luke and John wrote their Gospels in Greek. And James and Peter and Paul all wrote their, their epistles in Greek. It was a very common, as a matter of fact, the type of Greek they spoke is called Koine Greek, which means common. It was just a common street language. You didn't have to be educated to speak Greek. Everybody kind of spoke Greek. In other words, everybody said y'all. Okay, so it's just kind of an easy language to understand. Everybody could speak it and everybody could understand it. Now, that's why when, when the Apostle Paul began all of his missionary journeys, but, but you never thought about this. There's one thing that Paul never took, him, took with him even though he went to a foreign country. What did he never take with him? A translator. You ever thought about that? Why didn't Paul take a translator? When he went to Corinth, when he went to Rome, when he went to Scythia, when he went to Ephesus, when he went to Pergamum, why, why didn't he take? He didn't need to. Everybody spoke the same language. Everybody spoke Greek. So any Christian, after Jesus died and was raised from the dead, any Christian could go anywhere in any four directions and preach the gospel in a language that anybody could understand. Timing is everything. The timing was culturally perfect. Number two, the timing was politically perfect. Now, this, this gets more incredible to me. When you go back and you look at the history of other empires, normally, you know how this works. When one country conquers another country, and then another country, and then another country, the more people you conquer and the more territory you take, the harder it is to keep control of all of it. The harder it is to kind of ride herd on the people. And the harder it is to maintain stability. Because if you go back and study your history, you'll find this out. Empires, by and large, never fall from without. Empires, by and large, always fall from within. 
Well, the reason why the Roman Empire became so strong for so long is because the Romans did something that the Greeks were not able to do. They were able to foster an economic and a political stability that was almost unprecedented. So again, just kind of bear with me. Listen to what God was doing. From about 27 B.C., to about 180 A.D., about a period of about 200 years, there was what is now known, you may have heard this term, as the Pax Romana. How many of you ever heard of that term? So, okay, let me tell you what that term was. It, it was a great era in world history. The Pax Romana literally means Roman peace. For about 200 years, peace reigned universally across the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, the Romans had a god they called Janus, J-A-N-U-S. We get the word January from that. January is named after the Roman god Janus. He was the god of war. Now, they built a temple to Janus. Whenever the doors to the temple of Janus were open, it meant there was a war going on somewhere in the empire or somewhere outside the empire. Rome was at war. Soldiers were in battle. When the doors were closed, it meant there was total peace. When Jesus was born, for only the second time in the history of the Roman Empire, those doors were closed. For only the second time, there was perfect peace throughout the Roman Empire. So for 200 years, for almost 180 years after Jesus was born, any Christian could go anywhere in the Roman Empire and preach and teach the good news of Jesus Christ and not have to worry about being murdered or robbed or beaten, not have to worry about stepping into a battle or a war because they were basically at perfect peace. Now, this is why this is a big deal. Because they were at perfect peace and because they weren't having to spend a lot of money on fighting battles and fighting wars, guess what they did? They began to devote their manpower and their money and their resources to building an infrastructure of roads and highways. And the Roman Empire was literally crisscrossed with roads. As a matter of fact, if you ever go to Rome, I've been there, there are some of those ancient roads you can still travel today. The road to Damascus was a Roman road. You can still take the road to Damascus today. That road's 3,000 years old, 2,500, 3,000 years old. And the people are still traveling them that day. As a matter of fact, there's a famous saying, some of you may remember it, because the way you've been answering these questions, most of you probably don't. But there's an old saying, all roads lead to Rome. Why, why, where did you think they got that saying was from? Because all roads did lead to Rome. They had, they had the equivalent of our interstate system today. They had crisscrossed the Roman Empire with roads and with highways. And that's so, so they would say, hey, you want to go to Rome? Just get on any highway. Eventually, you will make it to Rome. Now, you may remember under Augustus Caesar, at the very time Jesus was born, the Romans did something that was very interesting. They gave what we now know in his history is the first highway patrol ever instituted and ever known to exist. They put soldiers at certain points along the road to ensure the safety of travel for their citizens. So again, you're a Christian. You just you, you, you know the Lord and, and you feel called to do mission work or you want to go visit a relative that lives somewhere else. You could go travel on a nice road, be perfectly safe, and you could preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it gets even better than that. The Romans also initiated the finest postal system that the earth had ever before known. Letters could be written and carried and dispatched all over the known road on roads that were built in a peaceful atmosphere in a language that everybody could understand. 
Do you get what I'm saying? Back in that day, you could write a letter, send it. You could take a trip and go. You could go in perfect peace, and you could speak in a language everybody could understand. You see, timing is everything. The timing was culturally perfect. The timing was politically perfect. Watch this. The timing was spiritually perfect. Now, let me tell you why this is my most important point today. It really wouldn't matter if everything was perfect culturally. And it really wouldn't matter if everything was perfect politically. If things were not right spiritually. And they were absolutely, totally right for the taking. Because remember, the Jewish nation that Jesus was born in really was not the Jewish nation of the Old Testament. Now, if you don't know much about the Old Testament, just hang in there. I'm going to give you a little brief overview, and you'll see why I say that. The Jewish nation that Jesus was born into was really not the Jewish nation of the Old Testament. Let me tell you why. After King, after King David died, he passed all the kingdom on to King Solomon. But after Solomon died, the nation of Israel had a, had a civil war. Civil war broke out, and that, the, the nation of Israel was divided into two nations. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, and there was the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, they began to disobey God, and they began to get into paganism, and they began to rebel against God's word and against God's law. And so what happened was, around 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was taken into captivity. And around 586 B.C., the southern kingdom was taken into to captivity. And guess what happened to all the Jewish people that were living in the nation of Israel? They were dispersed all throughout several different countries throughout the, what, the, the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, that dispersion has a technical name. You don't need to remember it, but it's called the Diaspora, D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A. Spora means seed. Dia means through or away. It literally means scattering seed away. So what happened was God not only let the people go into captivity, he not only, in, in effect, destroyed the nation politically, but he forced all these people to be dispersed throughout all these different countries. So God not only broke the nation, God broke the hearts of the people. People. And here's one thing that changed with the Jewish people, and it's never, ever been different since then. After the diaspora and after the, the people actually were finally allowed to come back to Israel and come back and rebuild the land, never again did they ever go into paganism. Never again did they ever, ever go back to a worshiping many false gods. They went back to their monotheistic roots. They went back to believing there's only one God, and they went back to teaching and preaching the Old Testament God and, 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 but the problem was this. They could no longer have temples except the one that Herod built that we know about. So since they could not have temples because you could only really build a temple in Jerusalem, they built synagogues. Now let me tell you what, that's a big deal. If you go to the book of Acts, you begin to read about how Christianity exploded and how Christianity spread so rapidly you ask the question, yeah, how, how did Christianity grow so fast? How did Christianity spread so quickly? Well, when you go back to the book of Acts, here's what you'll find. The, the man that led the missionary movement, the Christian missionary movement, probably the greatest Christian missionary who ever lived, was the guy who wrote this book. His name was Paul. And here's what Paul would do. You read it over and over the book of Acts. Paul would go to a foreign city, 
All right? Somebody tell me. I've kind of already given you the clue. What's the first thing Paul would look for? Somebody tell me. He looked for a synagogue. You say, well, why would he look for a synagogue? Because he knew what he would find in that synagogue. What would he find? There would be a congregation of Jews there. And what would those Jews be looking for? They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the promised seed. They were looking for God to keep his word. And so what he would do, he would go into those synagogues, and guess what he would do? He would take the Old Testament, and he would show how Jesus fulfilled the teachings of the Old Testament, and he would begin to teach, this is the Messiah you've been looking for. He's just not the kind you've been looking for. He is the suffering servant. He is the Son of God. He is the sacrificial lamb, and God has raised him from the dead. Now, here's what I want you to see. Before the world was even created, before Jesus Christ ever even came into this earth, God had already made plans that there would be a gospel-preaching headquarter in every quadrant of the Roman Empire. Timing is everything. And so that is the beginning of the Christian movement. Because as you well know, you go back to the early stages Almost every new believer at first came from the Jewish people because they were ripe and they were ready for the coming of a Messiah that had been promised thousands of years earlier. So, why was Jesus born on whatever day he was born? And again, we don't know. We do know he was born on Sunday. So, why was Jesus born on this day? Well, here's what we now know. God never acts on a whim. God never draws straws. God never flips a coin, and God certainly never says, whatever. Paul says, Jesus was born at an appointed time, in an appointed place, and within a generation after his death, he was worshipped in every foreign country within the Roman Empire. And listen to this. Within three centuries after his resurrection, Christianity was declared the, the state religion of the Roman Empire. Timing is everything. See, here's what you and I don't understand. We get hung up on time, right? That's why we wear watches. That's why we don't like to wait. That's why we tap our foot. That's why we don't like to get in traffic, right? We're all worked up over time. Listen to me. God couldn't care less about time. What is important to God is not time. What is important to God is timing. Now, I wanna, I'm going to close with this. I have waited 13 years to tell this story. So Merry Christmas. God is still in the perfect timing business. I witnessed it in one of the most incredible things that's ever happened in my life. Matter of fact, if you said to me, Pastor, what are the top three or four things that ever happened to you? This would make the list. This is absolutely one of the most incredible experiences of my life. You never heard this before. So I want everybody close your Bibles, put down your notepad, put down your pen, turn to your neighbor and say, listen to him. All right? Okay, now look. This will be worth coming to church for. It was August of 2001, just before 9-11. Uh, as I was president of the SBC and I was doing a missionary tour of, of the different uh, regions around the world. And uh, I happened to be over in Europe doing a tour over there and I was taking a group to Israel. 
And I met my group over in Cairo in Egypt, and then we took a bus ride across the Sinai Desert into Israel. Now, back in that time, there was this uprising by the Palestinians going on. You hear this term so often. It was called the Intifada. Tensions were high. Tourism had basically been shut down. And even to this day, and I've been to Israel over 20 times, even to this day, it is the most deserted I have ever seen this country. As a matter of fact, looking back, we probably should have canceled the trip because the whole time we were there, this never has happened to me, the whole time we were in Israel, we only saw one other tour bus in the whole country. And normally it's just, you know, full of them, right? We only saw one other tour bus. Now, here's the way it works. If you ever get to go to Israel with me, and I hope many of you will, it's a great trip. But every day is meticulously planned out. Every day is planned out, I mean, to the, almost to the exact time, exact minute. And, and we're on a very tight schedule. But on this particular trip, there weren't any crowds. There weren't any long waits. There weren't any buses to get behind. And so every day we, we went a lot quicker than, than normal. We would get through to it. Normally we start about 8 o'clock, and we really go hard till about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. But we were getting early. We were getting done early because there wasn't anybody to wait in line for, and we were able to go in and get out real quick. So on this particular day, we had been down to the Dead Sea, and we were coming back to Galilee. We were staying there in Galilee. And uh, it was about 10 minutes until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, we were supposed to come back to the Jordan River the next day to baptize. So we're about two miles from the Jordan River, and our guide looked over me, and he said, uh, he said uh, Dr. Medid, he said, uh, you know, we, we have plenty of time left in the day. That's how they talk over there. And he says, you know, since we're going to be right by the Jordan River, and since everybody has brought their bathing suits with them because we told them to keep them on the bus, he said, uh, why don't we just go ahead and baptize right now since everyone has their swimsuits and it will give us more time to do some other things tomorrow. We had not planned to do this. We were just you know, going back to Galilee. Well, I got on the microphone. I said, hey, guys, anybody have a problem? We're going to be going right by the Jordan River rather than backtracking and coming back, which everybody liked to be baptized. And everybody agreed. said, yeah, that's a good idea. So we pull into the parking lot. How many of you have ever been to Israel with me? All right, some of you have. You'll know what I'm talking about. Normally, that pocket lot is full. I mean, it's just jammed full of people because it's a big thing to get baptized in Jordan River. I'll always forget, remember this. We pull into that parking lot at five minutes till three in the afternoon. There's one car in the whole parking lot. place totally deserted. Well, we, uh, we, we pull in the parking lot, and I look down at my watch, and it was one minute till three o'clock. I just remember looking. It was one minute till three o'clock. So now, they know what they're doing over there. To get to the Jordan River, you have to go through the gift shop. I mean, they know what they're doing, right? So you got to go through the gift shop. And so that's where you pick up your robe to go baptize. So I just picked up my robe, and I was just about to walk through this glass door to get out, and you go, and they got a place where you change to go baptize down there. And uh, there was a man standing there. Just when I opened the door, there was a man standing right there. And he said, um, Dr. Merritt, may I have a word with you? Now, it never dawned on me that the guy knew who I was. I, I don't even know why. It just, just never dawned on me. And I said, well, yes, sir, how, how can I help you? He said, well, you see those three people? Oh, there's three people sitting at the table. He says, I I'm guiding those three people. And uh, there's a man and his wife and their 18-year-old son, and uh, they want to get baptized. He said, I, I can't do it. I'm a Jewish rabbi. I don't even believe in Jesus, which I wanted to ask why is he guiding them, but that's another story. He said, I'm a Jewish rabbi. And he said, uh, you know, we were just wondering, would you be willing to baptize them? And I said, well, I, 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 I'm not sure. I said, I, I've got to get their testimony first. I, I need to make sure that they've truly had an experience with Christ. And so I went over there, and, and they gave me their testimony. I introduced myself, and they gave me their testimony and told me they'd been saved. And I said, well, look, I've got over 55 people here to baptize. I said, do you, do you want to wait till I baptize them, or, or, or do you want to go ahead and go first? And they said, well, if you don't mind, we'll, we'll, we'd rather go first. I said, that's fine. So we all went down to the Jordan River. I was in the robe, and I'm in the, in the river. And so all our folks are up there on the, on, in the bleachers. 
And I said, folks, uh, this, this is a couple I just met. They're, they're saved. They know the Lord. And uh, they want me to baptize them. And so I'm going to baptize them first, and I'll baptize you. So I baptized them, and, and then I baptized my, my group, which took about, you know, took, probably took about an hour. And uh, then um, I, I got out, of, you know, went up, took a shower, and, and, and got my clothes on. And I'm going to take my robe back to the, to the bookstore. When I walk out of the shower, th- this same guy standing there. And he says, Dr. Merrill, I, I hate to bother you again, but, you know, w- would you mind signing their baptismal certificates? And I said, no, I, of course, I'd be glad to. So I went over to the family, and I sat down, and I'm starting signing their certificates. And the husband looked at me, and he said, um, Dr. Merritt, we just cannot thank you enough that you baptized us. Now, I'm signing the certificate. I didn't even look up. I said, oh, man, I said, I'm just glad to do it. No, no problem. And he said, no, 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 you, you don't understand he said, it means the world to us that you baptized us. And then his wife just burst into tears. She just started crying. I, I think she thought I was going to charge her. So she just, you know, burst into tears. I said, uh, is something wrong? Oh, he said, no, no, no. He said, uh, can I tell you my story? I put my pen down. I said, okay, yeah, tell me your story. He said, we're from South Africa, my wife and I and my son are. And he said, we actually had planned this trip a long time ago. And even though we knew there would be some risk involved, we knew that it was kind of now or never for us. And so we decided to come ahead and go. I said, okay. He said, "Um, we watch you on television every Sunday afternoon. I've watched you for years. I said, really? He said, yeah. And he said, "Um, we, we went to the airport. We got on the airplane. We're about to taxi down the runway. And he said, my wife looked at me and she said, wouldn't it be wonderful if James Merritt would baptize us in the Jordan River? And he looked at her and he said, are you crazy? He said, number one, we don't even know if he's over there. Number two, even if he is, what do you think the odds would be that we would happen to run into him at the Jordan River? So he said, she looked at me and she said, well, we can at least pray about it, can't we? He said, I just laughed at her and told her she had lost her mind. I said, you're, you're crazy. And she said, we're taxing down the runway. She looked at me and my son and she said, you bow your head and close your eyes right now. And she said, we're taxing down the runway. And she said, God, you can do anything. If it's your will, please let James Merritt baptize us in the Jordan River. About that time, I'm thinking, I need to go buy some lottery tickets. Okay, somewhere i got to find some lottery tickets. I said, wow. Man, I said, that's fantastic. He said, oh, no, 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 no. You haven't heard the entire story. There's more. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, "Um, we got here at 9 o'clock this morning. And we sat here six hours waiting on somebody to baptize us. I said, you mean in six hours nobody came? He said, nobody came at all. He said, at five minutes until 3 o'clock, my guide said to me, if somebody does not come by 3 o'clock, we're just going to have to leave because we've got other places we've got to finish up in. And I'm sorry, you just won't be able to be baptized in the Jordan River. He said, we were crushed. He said, my wife was sitting with her back to the bookstore and I was sitting facing her. He said, we were gathering, gathering up our things to leave. And he said, I looked through the door, and I saw you. He said, I looked at my wife, and I said to her, you are not going to believe who's in that bookstore. She said, who? 
He said, James Merritt. She thought I was making fun of her. She slapped me right across the shoulder, just slapped me. And she said, I want to tell you right now, that's not funny. He said, honey, I'm not joking. And at that moment, I want to tell you, I was just one big goosebump. So I just want to ask you a question. You tell me. You, you, you tell me. What are the odds that that was the day that they were to be at the Jordan River? What are the odds that even though we were supposed to baptize the next day, the guide suggested that we baptize that day? And what are the odds that we got there one minute before they would have left? Timing is everything. Now, I want to tell you something. Our God is still in the timing business. He's never late. He's never early. He's always on time. And I figured out why. He is not on Eastern Standard Time. He's on eternal standard time. And all of history is really his story. It's all planned out to the year. It's all planned out to the month. It's all planned out to the week. It's all planned out to the day. It's all planned out to the second. Because to God, time is nothing. Timing is everything. In the fullness of time. God sent his son. There was an exact time that Jesus should be born. There was an exact time that Jesus should die. There was an exact time when he should be raised from the dead. There was an exact time when he should ascend into heaven. And let me tell you this. There is an exact time when Jesus is coming again. And there is an exact time for you to put your faith in that Jesus. And that time is now because timing is everything. Let's pray together.